Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One of the biggest cohorts of the My Millennial Money community in terms of occupation is professional services, not only financial, management, it could be sales and absolutely medical. And I really saw a need to talk to some of the nuances that can happen in professional services, medical roles, government roles, whether it is salary packaging or anything like that. Now, for those who are new to the podcast, and we have had an influx of new listeners, So I wanted to get on Dev Raga. Dev hosts a podcast called My Millennial Money Professional. It is tailored to professionals. However, money is money and money doesn't care whether you're a tradie or a professional. And the reason why it's called that is it's hosted by Dev Raga. Dev is an anonymous doctor based out of Melbourne. He had a podcast and he just talked about money stuff for medical professionals. It's since evolved into My Millennial Money Professional. Dev's part of the team now. Dev, welcome back to My Millennial Money. You ready to have a chat today about all the good things? Thanks for having me, uh, Glenn, and uh, let's go. All right. Rightio. So, Dev, give us a bit of a, a snapshot of the type of content that you talk about and who you are primarily talking to on your podcast. Yeah, so I sort of had a podcast called Deb Raga Personal Finance and I joined the My Millennial Money Network at the start of uh, 2022. It was uh, an interesting year nonetheless and since then uh, I've been with, with the My Millennial Network. One of the things that I'm very, very particular about uh, in my episodes is I mainly only talk about financial principles and concepts. So I don't generally talk about financial products. I don't review financial products. I don't provide financial advice because I'm not a licensed financial advisor. I'm a medical doctor. I practice medicine. But what I've noticed is that, um, and this is when I was doing it as Dev Raga Personal Finance and also when I started doing it with My Millennial Money Networks, is that it didn't matter what profession you are because the principles and concepts of money is exactly the same. So what I started noticing was more and more allied health practitioners, nurses, people other than doctors started listening in. And now we've got a wide range of audiences across major professions, everything from lawyers to accountants to engineers. And also more recently, I did an interview with an electrician with a net worth of two plus million dollars at the age of uh, 30 odd. So um, generally, I try and focus on the principles. I don't worry about the noise. I sometimes talk about what's happening in the financial media, but most of the time it's keeping it very simple so that if you come back and listen to any of my episodes in 20, 30, 40 years time, unless legislatively things have changed, the principles will be the same. And it's not only the 
uh, principles are the same for whatever profession, money's the same for whatever age as well. Like we are branded my millennial, but it's because all our show hosts are basically millennial and we speak millennial. However, money concepts are the same whether you're 17 or 17, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you go back to, I mean, I, I watch a fair bit of YouTube. Um, and when I say I watch a fair bit of YouTube, I actually do it while I'm driving in the sense I'm actually not watching YouTube, but I'm listening to some of the YouTube um, playlists that I have. And, you know, some of my favorite people that I listen to is Burton Malkiel, the Vanguard founder, Jack Bogle, uh, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Peter Lynch. And these people talk about principles even back in the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s. And they went through similar things that we've gone through last year and are still going through mm. rising interest rates, inflationary pressures, cost of living crisis. Uh, they had the oil crisis and the shock in the 80s. Um, they had stagflation. Now we've sort of going through all of that now. And what I've realized is it doesn't really matter whether it's 2023 or 1980 or 1990. It's almost as if history is repeating itself. And it's almost as if that I am basically talking about things today. I can always relate to what those people have talked about in the past. Mm. And um, knowledge is really important. So my aim is to spread that knowledge and people can do what they want with it. Um, they can use it. They can hopefully utilize it to their own personal circumstances. But um, the principles are exactly the same. Money is money. And really, it doesn't matter whether it's 2023 or 1990. Mm. Now, I'm going to ask you a heap of questions just to kind of prime the pump and see if we can get into some trouble. Now, after your little synopsis of what you talk about and what you watch and what you've seen, what do you reckon are some of the common mistakes people make when it comes to investing? Surely the mistakes are also repeated over the generations. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, one of the things that I, I do a fair bit of um, discussions, um, mainly, mainly with doctors um, who are struggling with money. I haven't really had a significant phone conversation with anyone other uh, than a doctor, mainly because, you know, most of my podcasts are spread around the medical forums. But of course, now we have listeners from across the border professions. Now, the common mistakes that I see is people think that saving and investing can wait. Um, in fact, it can't wait. It has to start as soon as possible because life happens. Um, you know, I've spoken to a number of people, again, mainly doctors, but also, you know, I've Facebook chatted and Twitter chatted with non-doctors as well. And what tends to happen is, you know, they're 29, they're 35, and all of a sudden they're 45, all of a sudden they're 50, and all of a sudden time is starting to run out for them. So get started early, keep it very, very simple, and make sure you pay yourself first and invest it as soon as possible. Now, the second mistake that people make is they think that investing is really complicated. So what they try and do is they try and listen to a lot of financial media. And this sounds really cliche, but it happens every single time. The number of times that I get asked, Glenn, when is a good time to invest because of what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening with, you know, the current government, uh, the Albanese government changing the superannuation rules, all of that is just noise. You know, you're going to look back on this 20, 30, 40 years later and go, thank God, that I started when I started. So there's two things, start early and just stop thinking that finances is complicated. 
start early, pay yourself first, invest, and just don't pay too much attention to all this noise that's happening out there. Now, if I throw a spanner in the works, you know, and you're a doctor, you get this, you know, you work in, I don't know if we can say, but we'll say hypothetically, you might work in an emergency department. Uh, can I say that? Whatever you, I just you, did. You can. I work in the emergency <laughs> sector. Yes. One of, yep. one of the jobs that I have is, yes. Yeah. So patient comes in, heart attack, legs cut off, you know, got to stop the blood first, right? Before we worry mm. about the heart. So what you've said there, patient has come in, just get started, get started now. Don't listen to the noise. Now, what if that patient comes in and they're carrying consumer debt? What do you say to that? Because I've got a view on this and I'd like to know your view on that as well. Generally, people say, hey, there's good debt and there's bad debt. I don't see it that way. I see bad debt and really bad debt. Um, so debt for me is not something that I like. So consumer debt, absolutely no, no, right? I mean, again, just the other day, I was on a medical forum and a doctor had posted online, hey guys, thinking about buying a car, just achieve fellowship, which means they're fully qualified, they've done the exams and they're post exams, which is a great achievement. It usually takes, you know, 10, 12, 15 years. And the post was about, should I be interest arbitraging? Should I be borrowing money to buy a car for personal use rather than taking the money off the offset or rather than just paying cash for it if they had some spare cash. Mm. Now, that all sounds great, but that's consumer debt. Borrowing something to buy something that depreciates is a disaster. So I agree with you. Consumer debt is terrible. What I've learned as I've become older and become a parent and I've got dependents is that I don't like debt. I get a little bit nervous with debt. Uh, I'm luckily uh, mortgage-free, so I've equilibrium for my mortgage and my offset account, and that gives me so much peace of mind and a better night's sleep than perhaps, you know, 10 years ago when I wasn't. Mm. So consumer debt, no. Generally, where possible, try and avoid debt, but I do understand that you may need to borrow some money for investments or buying a house, for example. Yeah, and I kind of think I've kind of changed a bit of my view over the years on this whole debt thing and paying down debt. And I reckon if, you know, we know that we need to be investing for the long term and we know we need to get started now. So what I said in my book was, if you are on a a campaign to get out of consumer debt, and thankfully 75% of our audience do not have any consumer debt, so well done. But if you're in the 25%, this is what I want you to do. Your reason for living financially at the moment provided that your career is strong and everything's, you know, relatively speaking, stable, Mm. your financial reason for living at the moment is to clear that consumer debt. Now, what we need to do, we still want to get you interested and encouraged in investing. So you're a part of the conversation in the Facebook groups. I kind of said, Dev, while you are getting out of debt week on week, even if you carved out, got one of the little micro investing apps and did $10 a week, just get your toe in the water to start learning and experiencing and feeling, you know, weekly cycles and all that stuff. But I don't want you to go full ham in on the investing. I want you to just dip your toe in and make that be the encouragement. So if I'm paying $300 a month, paying down my debt, as soon as that debt is gone, I'm diverting that $300 a month over to my investment account, not consuming that. That's kind of what I would say if you are stuck in debt and you do want to look to invest in the future. 
I think I think that's a good point. I think what you're really alluding to there is the behavioural element of the investing. So yes, the mathematics state that you need to pay off all of your debt, which is particularly high interest, and then start concentrating on the investment. But starting early and just putting 10 bucks, 20 bucks aside, great. It's not a huge amount of money, but it gets you in the behavioural framework. And we know that money is mostly behavioural and mostly psychological. So that's absolutely vital, but not the majority of your finances got investing when you got other debt, get rid of your debt, and then start dabbling in the investment on the side. Mm. And surprisingly, again, I use a medical example, a lot of doctors struggle with this, where they tend to keep borrowing money and then realise 10, 15 years later, they haven't got much in their super, they haven't got much in their investment accounts because they thought that they could potentially out-earn their expenditure and out-borrow it. Well, it turns out um, that's not true. And and you, I, mean, I know this sounds, you know, maybe I'm repeating myself here, but it is incredibly common that when I talk to some healthcare professionals and I, my, my, my life is mainly in healthcare and um, I don't have many sort of non-healthcare worker friends or colleagues or people that I speak to, that element is actually so common. And you'd think how in the world do these people end up finishing nursing school, medical school, pharmacy school, physio school, or whatever school there may be, and then get into this sort of simple trouble is actually quite fascinating. And, and I agree with you, it's mostly behavioural. I've noticed, you know, when working with doctors in particular and knowing doctors on a personal level and whatnot, two things happen when med school's finished, they get through their time, get their letters, right? This is what I believe happens. It goes two ways. The rubber band snaps and they're sick of living on nothing. They go get the big car loan. They go get, you know, you've worked your ass off for 10, 12 years. Now I've got the meaty salary. I'm now going to enjoy. So it's like at one end of the rubber band snapping mm. or the other end, when I've seen this, fully qualified, got my letters, 300K plus salary as a young professional and still living in a share house because the mindset is I don't have money. Now, I think both of those, like life being a spectrum and a pendulum and all that type of vibe, it goes one way or the other most of the time. And I think it's just about acknowledging your situation coming off the cliff of a big study campaign. It's, I mean, to the first point that you mentioned about, um, you know, study being a long time. Look, if you told someone that, you know, after 12, 13, 15, 16, 17 years of study to just hang on for another few more years, please hang on for another few more years and everything will be fine, it can be quite depressing because Mm. the whole psych of this is, you know, when, when I was in medical school, um, you know, I was a very good saver. I, I had a part-time job. I was on a scholarship, but I saved a lot of money, but I didn't really invest much of it. And I was always told that, don't worry, Dev, finish medical school, then things will be better. You finish medical school, then you do internship, then you realise, man, every 10 weeks I get an assessment. I thought I've done all my exams but it turns out that's when it starts. Then you finish internship, then you get your general registration and then you get told, don't worry, as a resident, you make more money, you can locum more money, but it turns out every 12 weeks you get an assessment. Mm. 
okay, you do your residency, then you have to apply for your registrarship, which is a training program. Then every six months you get an assessment and then you do that for five years or X amount of years. Then you do your fellowship and finally get your consultancy post. Then you realize you're the most junior consultant in the team. And by the way, you need to go overseas and do some fellowship elsewhere and come back and see me in a couple of years. Otherwise you won't get a tertiary hospital job. So you go and do that. You borrow money, you go overseas, do your fellowship in Paris or New York City or Los Angeles, whatever it is. Then you come back and now Dev is telling people, hey, just hang in there for another three years, live like a registrar, live like a junior consultant and you'll be fine. That's when people snap and say, well, hang on. I've done everything I possibly can. I've tried my best and now, you know, by the way, these people are not in their 20s. I mean, by the time you graduate from undergrad medical school, you're sort of 23, 24, 25, postgrad looking at 26. Then you've got 12, 13, 14, 15 years. You're looking at, you know, late 30s, early 40s. And now you're telling me that my mate, who's an engineer, a lawyer, an accountant, uh, an electrician, who is basically married, has got a few kids and has bought a house and a couple of cars. And you're telling me that I need to struggle for another three more years. Hell no. Mm. And that's the problem that I get a lot. Um, and that's where, I mean, like, like the biggest risk is when they get their fellowship certificate, they go out and potentially buy that car or buy that house because it feels like they deserve it. And it's a huge risk and it's a huge problem. If we take this kind of analogy one step further and bring it back to the general uh, population, you know, if we've been on a big financial goal campaign, right? So we've had three years of whether it was, oh, we want to get our mortgage offset to be equal to the mortgage, or we want to save up $100,000, go around Australia for 12 months, or we want to save up, start a business, we want to do this, we want to pay down debt, insert goal here long-term, right? My kind of encouragement, and I'm going to ask a, a listener question here that we put up in the Facebook group, and I'll probably appreciate your view on my answer to this, but like, you know, once you've come off something huge, it's okay to not do anything and just, you know, enjoy the moment. We don't always have to be striving for something and be it, you know, we've just got married and we've had big wedding. Let's just have 20 minutes without a freaking goal. And it's like, I've just completed my study or whatever. Well, let's just have freaking 20 minutes enjoying some good money and living life. And I'll just lead straight into this question because I put a, a question up in the Facebook group for those who want to ask you a question. Then Ewan said, thoughts on splurging money and living an enjoyable life versus saving for a future that isn't guaranteed, particularly if you don't have kids or something to give. I'm a long-time listener to Dev's podcast and a thing that he's repeated is having more money than you need in retirement. But curious, why not to spend and enjoy the money along the way? So... I've loaded you up with a whole heap of talking points there and with that question about living for the now, pressing pause, enjoying, uh, what do you take from that? That's a really good question. And look, Van's got a point. I think a lot of the stuff that I talk about in my podcast is very financially motivated. It's very about, you know, delayed gratification and saving and pay yourself and investing and really, really geeky concepts. But essentially what Van is asking is what's more valuable? Is your life today more valuable than what you value later on in life? And that is a very, very personal question. And this is the way that I would answer it. I've been a doctor now, this is my 15th year. Um, and the first 10 years as a How doctor- How old are you? Uh, I'm a millennial. 
So right. uh, north yeah. side of like me, north side of millennial, north, north side of millennial. Yeah. yeah. So and the the thing about is the first ten years of my medical career and my investing life and my personal finances, I was very stingy. I didn't spend much money. I didn't buy a massive house. Uh, in fact, my first house that we bought was $390,000 in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, which, you know, 15 or you know how many years later, you'd think, wow, that's a bargain. But at the time, I thought I'd pay too much. Mm. And what happened was even I, after about seven or eight years, felt, you know what, what are we doing here? You know, I'm saving so much money, I'm investing, but I never really saw what it could potentially produce, this sort of splurging, Okay. Then right about the 10-year mark hit and I started feeling a little bit wealthy and I said to myself, okay, maybe my savings rate, which was significant uh, back in my junior days and my early senior days, in up to 50, 60, 70% of my income I'd save because we didn't really have significant expenses. But then we sort of dropped it down to a 50% savings rate. And of course, throughout my entire postgraduate um, training, my income increased as well. So I used the principle that white coat investor uses in the US. You live like a resident when you're a registrar, live like a registrar when you're a consultant and live like a junior consultant when you're a senior consultant. Then, particularly since 2019, I started noticing something very interesting. Despite the expenses going up and both of my kids go to private school um, and that sets me back a significant amount of money, Despite that happening, despite my expenses going up and mainly it's educational expenses, my portfolio started rising. I'd reached a critical stage where essentially I could stop investing today and I'd be completely fine and I'd be more than completely fine. Mm. So particularly in the last sort of three years, we've started spending more money. So one of the things that I promised my family is that we would travel. We would at least have two or three international holidays and maybe two domestic holidays in every year. Now, the pandemic kind of stuffed it up. We sort of instituted this in 2019 before the pandemic, but the pandemic sort of stuffed it up. And ironically, during the pandemic, my income went Mm -hmm. higher. So what did I do? I saved all that income. I was very lucky enough that the stock market has bounced back and I've never wavered from my continuing pay myself approach. And then now the borders have opened My portfolio has grown and we've gone on holidays all of last year and we've gone on holidays already this year and we do tend to spend a bit of money. And I'm a millennial. I'm not Mm. that old. So I've got another, you know, 25, 30 years ahead of me, if everything goes well, of career and life. And that's where I see myself splurging the money because now I've done all the hard work. So this is the temptation that I was able to delay. And it's a very boring strategy, Mm. but to me, it's worked well. And now we travel well. We always stay in five-star hotels. Uh, We always spend a lot of money when we travel. And we don't really, I don't really think about it. Um, And lucky that we are in this position, but only because of what's happened. And if I didn't do that, then I wouldn't be where I am. Okay. I've got some questions and tell me to shut up and go away um, if they're a bit too whatever. Mm-hmm. Number one, if tomorrow you were diagnosed with a terminal illness, mm-hmm. do you think you'd be like, 
oh, I shouldn't have delayed that type of pleasure for that long, given I've got a young family. And, and maybe the question is, do you regret delaying that pleasure, particularly around the holidays and the family time? It's a really good question. And I'm a probabilities person. Mm. So the probability of me dying prematurely of, you know, malignancy or heart attack is lower than the probability of me surviving to enjoy life at the age of, you know, 40, 45, 50. And absolutely right. Tragedies can happen. Catastrophes can happen. I've spoken to many, um, again, doctors that have had really, really tragic sort of issues in their lives. But ultimately, I look at the situation from a probability standpoint. What is the probability that I will die tomorrow as a result of a lightning strike, for example? The probability is very low. Therefore, am I going to spend most of my money today in anticipation of a potential lightning strike tomorrow? The answer would be, of course not. It's absurd, Deb. That would be silly to do. So what is the probability of me having a uh, cancer uh, in the next sort of 12 months to 24 months? I mean, touch wood, I don't have cancer uh, at this stage and touch wood, I don't get it. But if I do get it, you can't plan for such probability and spend your money today and then realise the probability is low and come back five or 10 years later and go, "Mm, I didn't get cancer, I've spent all my money or spent most of my money and the compounding effect of what I have left over is significantly lower. Mm. So although I do get Van's question about splurging and enjoy life and living moment and experiencing and things like that, I'm in my prime of my career and I am spending money. Mm. We drop dollars for a holiday for two weeks just recently. Um, I'm happy to spend that money, but you can't spend it early on in your journey of financial independence and then later on regret that you've spent that money and did all that. I'm not saying you need to spend that much money. I'm just saying your experiences because essentially you're potentially robbing yourself of your own future. Everything's got to be a balance. So I've made a decision in our lives over the last three years that we've done enough We don't need to have a significant high savings rate. Don't get me wrong. I still pay myself 20% minimum um, and I still take advantage of that. But we don't need to do that much uh, in order to reach financial independence. And by all intents and purposes, uh, if it wasn't for significant expenses for education, we're done. Now, my second question uh, that you can tell me to shut up and go away, you know, someone might be listening to this and be thinking, well, that's easy enough for you. You're a medical professionals, doctors are paid really well. That's not relevant to me. Um, this is ridiculous. Why am I listening to a guy who's just spent grand on a holiday? Like, what would you say to someone like that who would make those comments? And uh, before you answer that, yep. I will say uh, in the time that I've known you over the last handful of years, I'm so happy and it's blown me away that you are now spending your money. Um, on those type of things, number one, just noticing. Um, And number two, I will say you probably work more hours than anyone I know. And we are recording this after hours and I can see a hospital doctor's room behind. So, you know, you've worked hard, you've studied hard, you literally save lives every day. Um, I've got no problem with you being financially successful and, and all that stuff. But what would you say to someone who is saying, well, that's all well and good. You're a quote unquote rich doctor. Yeah, good question. Look, I think that's that's an interesting sort of question, but uh, I, I go back to my life story. Essentially, I'm doing this only 
and only when I feel secure from a financial point of view. I did not do this at the age of uh, 25 when I first graduated um, as a doctor and became an intern. Uh, I did not do this as a resident. I did not do this as a registrar. Yes, overall, um, doctors have a relatively higher income compared to the average population. But I come back to the principles. You don't have to spend ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars on a holiday. That's not the point of all this, and that's not really going to make me any happier. And in fact, I speak to my wife uh, quite regularly. The happiness that I had living in a studio apartment as a medical student on a scholarship money, which was indexed to inflation back then, I think. I'm just as happier now. In fact, what makes me perhaps a little bit more happier is my family, my kids. Mm. All of this is irrelevant. And I speak to this, we, we, have a, we have a group of doctors that I hang around with. We call them ourselves a metabolic group because we, we catch up for dinners, we catch up for um, coffees and we have a chat. And we chat about life, we chat about uh, money, we chat about you know, philosophy. And what we've all realised, and all of us are in a very similar age group and a similar stage, is that none of this matters if I didn't have my family. Mm. So the point to that person that I'd make is that I hope that everyone can save money and invest. And we know that some people can and some people can't. And we need to make that journey easier and more equitable for anyone as possible. Um, But the point of this is not to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars um, on your holidays or on your cars, on your mansions. The point of it is that I've done all the hard work and I want everyone else to realise that there's no easy solution to this. Yeah, you can buy Bitcoin and strike it rich and make millions and yeah, you might have won the lotto. That's all fine, but that's not a sustainable solution for the average person, whether it be doctor, non-doctor, doesn't matter. It's not a sustainable solution for them to build wealth over the long term. And the principles matter. Start early, pay yourself first, don't spend much money um, and, you know, live on less than you make and invest the difference. Whether you're a bus driver, whether you're a neurosurgeon, doesn't matter. The mm. concepts are the same. And I think to Van's question, you know, particularly for my life, and I would encourage Van to kind of do this autopsy, like I talk a lot in my own head about values-based budgeting and my kind of three-pronged approach is live on less than I earn, be a generous giver and invest the rest. Now, the living on less than I earn thing, whatever that is in your life, I'm spending that money on whatever I want. And a a big chunk of that is going to be housing, mortgage payment or rent. Big chunk is going to be general life utilities and groceries and all that. For that portion of live on less than I earn, we'll have a carve out of stuff that I value. I've got a boat. I value spending money on my boat. I've recently uh, put a line item in my budget for a a thing that I value in my life. Um, I'm now getting a remedial massage every few weeks because I value that. And I'm also at the stage where it is a financial luxury and I never used to do a massage every three weeks. This is the first time in my life where I'm like, oh, I really like that. I really value that. I am being a generous giver. I am on balance living on less than what I earn and I am looking after my future. So I think it all comes back to that values-based spending. And for you, Dev, your family values those international holidays. And a lot of people like love holidays, but you value the premium side of it and you can afford it. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and it's a little bit, it, you know, let me tell you a bit of a story recently that um, I've got, um, you know, two children and they're phenomenal swimmers. And I always knew that they're phenomenal swimmers, but I didn't know to the extent of how phenomenal they were. And we were on holiday, um, you know, my, my kids were swimming in the open ocean in deep waters. Now, for context, I can't swim. Mm. So um, I actually flipped a jet ski and freaked out. And to me, I couldn't be any prouder. To me, I mean, what good is it that, um, you know, uh, someone has, you know, millions of dollars in their super or their investment account? For me at that moment, realising what amazing swimming skills that my children have, something that I could never achieve because I was just not good at it, um, that to me makes me happy. Um, whether that happens overseas when they swim or whether that happens in the backyard pool, that doesn't matter. And I, I'm so lucky to be able to be in that position to say, actually, none of kind of this matters because what matters for me now, the next journey, uh, Glenn, to be open and honest with you, my next journey is, me and my wife have talked about this. We want to make sure that our kids are safe. We want to make sure that they are given the opportunities um, as much as possible. And I'm very grateful as a first-generation immigrant. My parents worked hard, gave me the opportunity. I didn't go to private school. I went to public school, but that was good. That was an opportunity that I got. Um, and my parents reflect on that now and say, you know, thank God that we gave you that opportunity and here you are. And I want to do the same for my children. And I just want them to experience that. But I always tell them, and me and my wife are very, very candid about this to them, is that I always tell them, you know, we're not gazillionaires and all that sort of stuff, but I always tell them, guys, none of this is granted. Don't ever think that um, you're always going to get this when you grow up. Don't ever think that all of this is just free and happy and, you know, life's so sweet. All of this takes hard work um, and all of this takes planning um, and all of this is what hopefully I'm trying to do through my podcast to inspire other people to plan ahead of their life so that they get to enjoy life as they get older and reach mm. that point where they're able to splurge, but you can't do that early on unless you have an extremely high income. Uh, and uh, that, that's the risk that a lot of people potentially take. Um, and I, I've taken a very traditional route um, and so far, touch wood, it's working out, it's worked out, uh, but I always make sure I tell my kids, you know, don't just assume that all of this just happens randomly. It doesn't. So for example, one of the things that I teach my eldest one is, she gets to pay the bills. She gets to see how much it costs electricity. She gets to see how much gas costs. She gets to see how much her school fees cost, which she found out this term and she actually was quite surprised. Um, she gets to see how much petrol costs um, and she gets to see credit card statements. And I think that's relevant. Um, a younger one, a little bit too young, but I think that's relevant so that she understands that all of this is important, is real money. And, you know, when we go on holidays, we often make it a point that, hey, this is our budget and let's stick to it. Um, and we're just fortunate enough to have a pretty decent budget. Mm. We'll take a quick break. And after the break, I want to pick this back up because I want to ask Dev two questions about what he just talked about. We'll be back right after this. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Radio, we are back and we are talking about the community section of the week. It's a little section, segment, whatever you want to call it, where we put a question up in the Facebook group. And if you're lucky, your answers will be read out. Now, we can't do this segment without Sky Wealth. You've told us that the fifth major thing that you want to do this year is get your life and your income insurances sorted. And you can do that today. www.sky.com.au. That's S-K-Y-E. .com.au forward slash MMM. Reach out. The team will have a 15-minute chat with you to see how they can help. We asked, what product have you brought, new or secondhand, that's added value to your life? Winsome Norrie said, Crocs. I spent 29 years mocking them, thinking they're the ugliest shoes in existence. Then I turned 30. They're actually really comfortable. (laughs) They are very comfortable. It's actually very popular amongst the healthcare community because they're oh. very comfortable to wear in hospitals. Uh, if you've got the toes covered, of course. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. What other ones have we got there? We've got Sarah Moore who says, my robot vacuum cleaner, he empties himself and my stupidly expensive Dyson hairdryer. That's interesting. I didn't realize robo vacuum cleaners empties themselves. So that's Yeah, they've got a, uh, a return possible. base with a like a suction vacuum bag thing. Yeah. Right, right. So presumably you have to empty the suction vacuum bag unless yeah. it's sort of connected <laughs> to the external world. But we have a robo vacuum cleaner and two Dysons. They're amazing. Yeah, awesome. Moira Pepe said a coffee machine. Yeah, that's right. Totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, Sam Betton says Soda Stream. It's been a great saver of sparkling water, single use plastic bottles, hashtag environment goals, and also means that. Are more inclined to drink more water throughout the day. Health goals. So, so Soda Stream. It's not like soda water. Obviously, it's just like sparkling water. Is that right? Is yes. Cr- yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, and you can. So we'll see these things. I've been drinking these Mount Franklin lightly sparkling. Mm. Um, I'm drinking the watermelon one at the moment. No joke. I've had about five today. These cans. They're just so delicious. But right. I've been meaning to get a Soda Stream and my own flavoring. Just. I don't know. I, I'm going to do that. Thanks for the encouragement and reminder. Right. Kylie Haynes said, we were gifted a camper trailer. We did offer to pay, but they didn't want money for it. We have gone from a family that never goes on holidays 
to a family that has been away six times since the end of September. It's mm. so relaxing living the simple life while we are away and we spend so much more time together than if we were at home. Yeah, look, everyone needs to have more holidays if they can afford it, of course. Um, it's absolutely invigorating. Jasmine Jose, or Jose. Jose, maybe. Jose, maybe. Um, says LASIK, which is um, obviously a form of eye surgery. And uh, that's fantastic because, yeah, I think vision is really important, something that uh, most of us take for granted, but uh, amazing. Yeah. Do you have any products or things that have brought value to your life? Um, so I actually love my coffee machine uh, and we've actually got a coffee machine at work as well. We've got a proper latte machine uh, and I've got one at home. Um, and I used to I used to drink quite a bit of McDonald's coffee mm. and um, very unhealthy. So over the last sort of couple of years, I've migrated to, um, you know, making lattes at home. And of course, uh, I did my sums. I was spending like three or $4,000 a year wow. on coffee, which was quite significant. So uh, there's a machine at work now and there's a machine at home. So that's something that I really, really enjoy. Um, and of course, I love my car. Uh, the main reason why I bought a car, and for everyone that don't know, I drive a Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus. Bought it a while ago uh, when it was first released. I was on the waiting list purely because I was driving so much and I needed to save money and it's been a godsend and the autopilot and everything's been fantastic. Yeah, and I mean, it's better filling up the car with coal than uh, gasoline, right? <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? I mean, we've had this conversation before. <laughs> the efficiency of an EV, don't get me started on this, the efficiency of an EV is significantly more than the efficiency of the internal combustion engine. And uh, there will be an episode coming out because I've done 200,000 kilometres on my Model 3 and it has not flinched. Yeah, well, you enjoy your coal-powered car. <laughs> actually, I, was, I actually talked with my accountant just this week, yesterday, and I'm like, all right, what do I got to do? Because the FBT exemption for EVs. Correct, correct. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll bump out of this segment. Thanks, everyone, for taking part of the My Millennial Money Facebook group. Thanks to sky.com.au forward slash MMM for getting behind the My Millennial Money podcast. Now, Dev, what is your view in your life on, and just everyone, please know, none of this stuff that we're talking about has been prepped. And most of the time that Dev and I talk, it's more efficient for us to have a microphone shoved in our faces. So <laughs> the most time we get to connect is recording a podcast other than texts on Saturday nights. Um, what's your view on success versus luck in your life? Um, yeah. So let me start with luck first. Um, so we, we, we live in a country which is phenomenal. Um, if my parents had not made the sacrifices and made the decision to come here to Australia, who knows where there would have been some 30 years later. So that's just luck. It's not something that I've contributed to. It's just random luck. Um, me being male, I think is luck. I mean, I didn't do anything to be born a male. And as a father now that I sort of realise more and more how society needs to be more equitable to uh, females and other genders. Now, that's that's the luck side of things. Um, these are things that have been taken away from me. There's nothing that I've done to be born a male. Now, success, again, my background, first-generation immigrant, um, really didn't have anything when I was growing up, but my parents had very good values. They're both professionals, and they instilled very good values in myself, my older brother. And I think 
at some stage, I think it was around, I think it was around grade eight is when I realized that yes, there is a little bit of luck involved in terms of, you know, being successful, but, uh, and maybe for my age, I was a little bit more mature than normal, but, um, but a lot of what I saw my parents achieve uh, before then and after then is because they worked hard. And um, we only get given, you know, X amount of cards in life and we just got to make sure that we utilise it to the maximum ability as possible. Now, there is a little bit of first-generation immigrant mentality here and, of course, my parents were very worried that, um, you know, they've made a lot of sacrifices. So there was a little bit of pressure for myself and my brother to, for example, go to university. So that was really not an option. We had to go to university. And uh, there was maybe a little bit of pressure for us to do health sciences or engineering or law. Um, and I sort of realised at about grade eight um, that uh, I needed to work a little bit harder. Now, I'll tell you a little bit of a personal story. Right about grade eight or grade nine, and if Mr Kowalski is listening, um, he was my uh, mathematics teacher. And back then we didn't have opportunity classes, which uh, I think New South Wales has and a lot of Victorian schools has. Um, so we, the accelerated program was just coming up and um, it was parent-teacher interview. And my, my dad would always make it a point to take me to the parent-teacher interview so that I can hear the feedback uh, mm. from my teachers. The parent-teacher and dev interview. <laughs> That's right. And, and it was a bit unusual because a lot of parents wouldn't bring their kids. But my dad mm. always said, you need to come with me because you need to hear the feedback. Um, and I thought I was doing reasonably well. Um, I thought I was, you know, doing pretty good at school. And, um, Mr. Kowalski said, uh, Mr. So-and-so, Dev's dad, what do you think your son would like to do? What would you like him to become? And of course my dad said, you know, love for him to become a doctor. We've come all the way from India and, you know, we've had all this opportunity and I've got an elder son who's going to be an engineer. I'd love for him to do medicine, but, uh, you know, something professional. And uh, Mr. Kowalski said, forget it. It's, it's not really happening because he's averaging 84% uh, in his maths exams and um, I just don't see this happening, Mr. So-and-so. Um, now, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. One way is Mr. Kowalski was rude and, uh, and obnoxious and was very upsetting to my dad who was quite upset. Uh, not at Mr. Kowalski, at me <laughs> after the parent teacher night. Um, but I, I sort of take that as, uh, a huge feedback, um, uh, because I really took it on board after what he said. And he had a point, you know, I wasn't going to do, uh, you know, the trajectory that I was going was not going to be, uh, enough for me to be able to one day, hopefully, um, get into medical school. And luckily I wanted to be a doctor. I mean, by that time I'd already made, made a decision a year eight, year nine, that I wanted to do mm. medical school. Um, and there's a couple of ways that I've reflected on that. Um, I could have really taken it in a negative way and basically said, oh, you know, this is all just ridiculous, but I decided not to. And it's a very, very humbling experience to be told that in front of you. And I'm really glad that he did, but I also recognized that such level of brutal feedback um, is not always the right approach for everyone. It just so happened that I think he may have known that it wasn't going to impact me in a negative way. So coming back to the original point, um, luck, being male, 
my parents making the decision to come here and that was their that was their success decision and that was for me a pure luck but in terms of success I think we all get dealt cards we got to make the max of it and we all have events in our life that we reflect on and that was probably a sentinel event I have to say in my high school years mm. that really gave a kick up my ass and said you know what Dev you know he's got a point and uh, if you're listening Mr Kowalski thank you very very much have you had any adversity in your career and with your earnings and all that stuff based on you being a person of colour? Yeah, good question. Um, look, I'd be lying to you if I said that as a brown uh, immigrant person in the 90s that I had no troubles. Mm. Uh, I grew up in Adelaide. Uh, shout out to uh, Adelaideans listening in South, South Australia. Life in the 80s and 90s in Australia was different for coloured people. Uh, for brown people, for people of Asian ethnicity, uh, for basically non-white people. So it was actually very common for um, us to be walking down the street, run a mall um, and be told, uh, and you might want to beep this out. Yeah, we'll leave it. Black bastards go back to where you came from. That's not unusual. You know, that was something that I grew up with, but it wasn't it wasn't, I mean, if that happened today, uh, I suspect there'll be someone with a camera putting it up on Facebook and all that. We'd never had any of those things. So one of the things that I realised when I was growing up was I just assumed that that was normal. Mm. Now, a lot of my high school friends that I still keep in touch with are listening uh, to my podcast and they probably will listen to this. And they probably never realised that I didn't have an amazing high school experience up until about sort of year 12. High school was tough. Um, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was probably one of maybe three brown kids in school. I went to public school. Um, then medical school, a little bit more multiculturalism. Um, but as a doctor, um, have I experienced any sort of, you know, quote unquote discrimination? I'm going to be lying to you if I said I didn't. So mm. one, of the, one of the things that I did a lot of surgical training, it was not unusual for one particular surgeon in Melbourne to say, in your country, how would they approach this? And um, oh, gosh. and I'd be like, you know, how do you I don't respond know. Let's to that? Google it. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> let's so Google I, it together, shall we? I would I would sort of say, you know, well, in, in Melbourne, you know, a, an approach to a, a hernia repair is this is the way that I'd do it um, <laughs> to make sure that they, you know, maybe it was a mistake. But when it happens repeatedly, um, yeah, I mean, there was there was a fair bit of subtle, um, you know, subtle sort of discrimination. Um, look, I think there are a lot of people from a various ethnicity background. It would be an absolute lie if I said that there is no um, uh, potential uh, prejudice or discrimination in the Australian healthcare system today in public or private if you're a person that's non-white and if you are not male. So I think one of my advantages is that I'm male, um, but uh, women in healthcare, unfortunately, you know, uh, don't get treated the same as men, particularly in some specialties. Now, we are bridging the gap. We are making it more equitable. Um, and kudos to everyone that's done that over the last sort of 20, 30 years. And we need to do more. We need to do more for our First Nations persons um, in healthcare as well. So there is a little bit more, you know, uh, progress to be made. But I don't buy for one minute when people say to me, oh, you know, everything is fine. You know, we're all equal, et cetera. Well, um, having a little bit of money, being a doctor, being a male gives me certain privileges that perhaps, you know, other professions and other ethnicities and um, other genders may not have. So mm. I'd be lying to you if I said no. 
Yeah, well, well, it's important that we keep talking about it until it stops. Now, at the time of recording, you know, we've probably had the 55th interest rate increase in the last 10 minutes. So mm. interest rates are going north. If you've got a mortgage, uh, you would know about it big time. And just on that, everyone, if you do want to attend our webinar, it's happening in a, a short amount of time, a couple of weeks. There's a link in the show note. Um, jump in. There's a webinar by Rachel from Sphere Home Loans, who's helped a lot of listeners. So if you haven't reviewed your mortgage for some time, if you're about to roll off um, a fixed rate, or if you want to know about getting a, a mortgage for the first time for a home to live in or an investment property, please click the link in the show notes. It's a free informational webinar and um, yeah, you'll be in good hands there. So with all that going on, particularly the last um, you know few weeks, the the chatter around government with superannuation and putting a cap mm. on accumulation tax concessions. How should someone prepare for retirement with the uncertainty that might be out there at the moment? Yeah, so let's. There's, there's two big topics there. One is interest rate rises and rising cost of living, and also the superannuation changes. I'll briefly touch on. Um, it's absolutely housing security is really important. So um, if you are pinched for spare cash, there are two things you could do. Focus on your house, pay off your mortgage because your housing security is really important. Um, there's a saying in finance, it's very hard to go bankrupt if you don't have any debt. Um, and that's very true. Interest rate rises don't really affect me very much because I don't really have any uh, principal place of residence debt. It's equilibrium. Um, so for me, it's not a, not a major issue, but um, th that's what I'd do. I do. I'd focus on housing security because, you know, as a parent, as a husband, as a doctor, um, I see patients uh, that are struggling with the rising cost of living and they are worried. And, mm. and, and I think to have a safe space for yourself and your family is number one. Um, ask your bank or whoever your lender is to renegotiate. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, maybe just, you know, threaten them that you're going to leave and all that. You probably don't need to. Just send them an email, maybe just give them a call, whatever your bank manager's name is and say, look, I've got cost of living pressures. Um, I've checked my research and other banks are offering this. You know, can you do a little bit better? Now, I have to be honest and say my rates are not the lowest in town. But the reason why I'm happy to sort of pay a little bit higher is because I get a, you know, private banker. He does all my banking and he has a lot of ancillary things that he does and I never have to pick up a phone, never have to do anything. It just kind of happens. And I'm happy to pay that premium. Mm. And you don't have to get the lowest rates what's advertised. And You're this either is one with of the Nab things. or Macquarie. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that's the thing, right? Because we see posts online, my rate is 4.9%. Week what's twice yours? if I'm right. <laughs> He's not going there, everyone. He's not going there. <laughs> we, we, we see this often, but, but I say to people, you know, even just a 0.1% reduction by negotiating makes a big difference to your bottom mm -hmm. line. Now, you did mention, uh, and, and that's just by asking, and I ask. Yeah. I ask my internet provider for everything. I ask my uh, insurance providers for a cheaper deal. I ask my mortgage provider for a cheaper deal. I'm just like everyone else. It's just the mechanisms that I use to ask. It is maybe slightly different, but the principles are the same. Ask, don't pay the loyal tax. Now, the second bit is it is about the super. Now, can I just say off the record, I've had a, uh, on the record, beg your pardon, I've had a lot of messages on Facebook and Twitter from people that are really worried about the latest proposed changes to superannuation mm. if they have a balance greater than $3 million. 
Here's the deal. Irrespective of that, I'm not worried. And here's why. If you're paying tax, what's the alternative to have investments outside of super, which is not a tax effective way to do it for the average person. Now, if you've got companies and trust structures and you've got you know, uh, investments in the Cayman Islands, yeah, sure, you're doing well already. But for the average person and even the average healthcare worker that's listening in, you've you know, got pay as you go income, you're gonna pay yourself and you're gonna try and find a way to save money for retirement. And super is still pretty damn good. Yeah. So I'm just really worried that people are gonna make the bad and the wrong decision of not focusing on their retirement and spending money on super because they're so worried about what's potentially gonna happen in the next 20, 30, 40 years time. Having said that, it does affect some people and quite likely will affect me. Am I particularly worried about it? Not really. The one thing that probably worries me is the indexation that gets you know gets thrown around. Look, it's not going to get through the Senate in its current but form. Exactly. It I, I think it's going to get it's going to get yeah. watered down. Um, yeah. And uh, my understanding is the indexation is not legislated for other things anyway, like age pension and all that sort of stuff, and that gets indexed. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that's a really big deal. So one of the take home points is, you know, don't stress too much about this. Um, and the people that are stressing about this are the people that it's not going to affect. Um, and that brings me back to the last point. And the last point is very simply this. Have you noticed that 90,000 people with super balance above 3 million have the power to negotiate and keep this topic in the media, which doesn't affect 99.5% of the population? And to me, that's interesting. Um, it's powerful. And just think about it for a sec that uh, we've got so much problems with inflation and cost of living pressures and mortgage rate rises. But this this thing that's been talked about in the media has been stretched out for such a long time. Uh, and it's so fascinating for me that a small group of people, I'm not saying them particularly, but something that affects such a small group of people um, is such big news mm. in the media. And what you should do, turn off the TV. Yeah. And I think as well, like the way I'm looking at it, the politics of it is horrendous. Like, you know, you and I always chat, you know, tweet tags and whatnot. Like when Peter Dutton was like, oh, I, I was that. on the way to an interview and an average punter said, tell them to keep their mitts off my super. It's like, give me a break. The average punter, quote unquote, it's not going to affect you. And if it does, it's a good problem to have mm. that you've got excess money that you do not need for retirement. And 30% is still less than the largest tax rate outside of super. Mm. Now, the taxation thing with unrealized gains and all that, I think, yeah, it will watch this space, but don't lose confidence in the superannuation system. It's a great place to store money for long-term wealth accumulation. So when you stop working, you've got money to live off. I agree. And, and to be honest, most doctors, it's not going to affect them either, despite being one of the highest income earners in Australia. So uh, if you're a doctor, a junior doctor listening in, the chances are for you to be able to save $3 million in your superannuation fund, it's not going to happen because life happens. You're going to have other priorities. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't think it's a big deal, to be honest. And um, yeah, it's been blown way out of proportion. But hey, that's a 24-7 media cycle, yeah? I love that. Now, just in finishing... I mean, there was a list of 30 questions that I could have asked you that we didn't really get to, but it's been a, a great chat. Anything that's kind of on your mind or something that you want to have a bit of a 
a chat about or a PSA or anything like that when it comes to managing money, your life, your career, any of that stuff? Um, look, PSA-wise, I know this, this sounds like a really, really broken record and really, really boring, but um, when I speak to multimillionaires, and I do speak to some who contact me, um, you know, people worth 20, 30, 40 million dollars, and they contact me, they have a bit of a chat, and the advantage that I have is I don't know who they are, so I don't personally know them, but they do contact me through an alias, and I'm anonymous, and there's something about being anonymous enables me to be able to chat to them via the phone, via Facebook about money and, and all that sort of stuff. Not one person has said to me that they became multimillionaire uh, status as a result of arbitrage, as a result of interest rate arbitrage, as a result of uh, leverage. Frequent fly points. <laughs> frequent fly points as a result of credit card mileage points, as a result of leveraged ETFs, inverse ETFs, shorting the market. It's never happened. Um, and nine times out of 10 or 99% of the time, I ask them, how did you do what you did? Because, uh, you know, clearly, um, you know, they built a lot of wealth. One is they got a very high income very early on. And two is they saved a buck a load of money. And three is they might've, you know, started a business. I also speak to a lot of, you know, one, two, three millionaires. Um, and they're just average working people that are earning, you know, 70, dollars $150,000 a year, which, you know, a little bit above average, I should say, and are able to build that net worth of a million dollars. And there is an episode that I release where I interview a electrician and he, and I kept asking him, how's that possible? You're $2 million net worth at the age of, you know, 30, I think it was. And he said, actually, I just didn't borrow money. just made a lot of money, saved a lot of money and invested it. Mm. Um, and it's as boring as that. That's the PSA. It's boring. It's Devraga, boring episode, uh, broken record stuff. But it's, that's what's going to get you to financial independence. It's not your leveraged inverse ETFs. It's the two things, buy bricks and businesses for the long term. Easy. Yeah, love that. Dev Raga, the host of the My Millennial Money Professional podcast. You can jump over, subscribe to that, follow that wherever you're listening to this podcast. And, you know, Dev, a lot of people don't like me and my show. And I say, well, if you don't like how I do it, go and listen to Dev because he's the complete opposite. He's measured, he's considered, he's a better podcaster than me, but uh, I'm here for the lulls and the fun. And that's why we've got good people like you in our corner. So, Dev Raga, you can follow Dev on Twitter, Facebook, all the things. Thanks so much for sharing uh, this last hour with us. Thank you so much for having me. And if you like a bit of controversy, follow me on Twitter because I don't hold back. Love it. <laughs> we acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.